Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello and welcome to the Best Interest Podcast. Jesse Kramer here. This is episode 74 of the Best Interest Podcast. Wow. 74 episodes, and I'm really excited to bring on Brian Feraldi today. Brian is an absolute expert when it comes to stock investing, evaluating stocks, evaluating the companies underlying stocks. And Brian's also, he's just a great speaker, a really exciting speaker. I loved the conversation I had with him originally that I'm going to be bringing you today. I loved listening to it a second time as part of the podcast production. And then I'm going to enjoy listening to this final episode, I know, to listen to Brian a third time. So I'm excited to bring Brian to you guys. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about something called the index fund bubble, because as much as Brian enjoys investing in individual stocks, he understands, as I understand, that for most of us, including me, index funds or a diversified portfolio is just easier. It makes more sense. And over the long run, based on how much effort we really want to put into our investing lives, something like an index fund probably makes more sense that's one of the principles that, that we espouse here on The Best Interest is, is a diversified portfolio that tends to steer clear of individual stock picking, even though stock picking is certainly exciting. And, and it's important to understand the underlying mechanics of how stocks have their value in the first place. And that's what Brian talks a lot about. But yes, I'm going to talk about something called the index fund bubble in a minute. But first, we have our review of the week. As you guys know, these reviews come from Apple Podcasts. So if you're so inclined, I'd love to read your review. Leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can just give the the show a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever your podcast app of choice is. This review is from Jane, who said, great podcast. Jesse's podcast is fantastic. I love the interviews, and Jesse does a great job explaining complex financial topics. We'll strap in Jane because today's topic is a little bit complex. Uh, Jane also says she really enjoys listening and definitely recommends it to anyone who's looking to improve their finances and stay inspired along their journey. Jane, thank you so much for the kind words. Feel free to reach out to me, jesse at bestinterest.blog, and I'll get you set up with some cool best interest gear. Okay, let's dive into the indexed fund bubble. This is a topic that bubbles, (laughs) bubbles to the surface every once in a while, maybe every couple years. And it's an argument in some ways against passive index investing. First, I think to ground ourselves, we should just remind ourselves, just in case someone doesn't know exactly what an index fund is. An index fund owns a wide assortment of assets like stocks and owns those assets in proportion to their market share. So what that really means is S&P 500 index fund would own all the stocks in the S&P 500 Uh, Since Apple and Microsoft each make up maybe a 5% share of the S&P 500, that index fund would be comprised of 5% Apple and 5% Microsoft. But since Chipotle is only about 0.08% of the S&P 500, the index fund would own 0.08% of Chipotle. That way, the index fund itself is benchmarked to the S&P, kind of like a shadow that follows around all of the body's movements. There are many different types of index funds. There are bond index funds. There are total stock market index funds, which own not only the S&P 500, but every single stock out there in the market. There are lots of options in the index fund world. 
let's talk about this idea of the index fund bubble. What exactly is that? So I was listening to a podcast called Odd Lots, and specifically, I was listening to an investor named Mike Green, and we'll link this episode into the show notes. The original idea behind indexing in the first place is that active traders, people who are looking to outsmart the market, people who are really looking for an edge and looking for profit, that those active traders and any sort of actively managed funds that they're in charge of would dictate how the market behaves. And that a smaller number of passive investors, like index funds, would simply go along for the ride. There would be a majority of active traders that are kind of like the dog, if you will, and then a minority of passive investors that are the tail. The dog does what it wants, the active investors drive the market, and the tail only follows along. Well, if dogs don't do it for you, I also like the boat analogy. Think of actively managed funds and active traders as this large cruise liner, and then passive investors are a small canoe. The cruise liner picks its course. The canoe ropes onto the cruise liner and gets a free ride. The cruise liner, for the most part, doesn't even notice the small canoe's drag whatsoever, so its course is largely unaffected. This big-small relationship is the original assumption behind passive investing, that market behavior would be dictated by the active majority and that the passive minority would get a free ride. However, Mike Green, this investor on the Odd Lots podcast, says that we now live in a paradigm where active and passive investing are far too close in size, and therefore the fundamental underlying assumption no longer rings true. The big boat, small boat, or dog tail story is no longer true. So Green is saying that right now, millions of average Janes and average Joes like us, individual investors, are using index funds to invest huge portions of our income and savings. That's how a lot of 401ks work and many of their non-American equivalents. Green points out how recent U.S. legislation changes are actually pushing 401ks and passive investing even further into the mainstream. And largely, at least in my opinion, that's good. But what it means is that passive investing is no longer the small tail. It's no longer the canoe. It's now a fairly large boat, and the active management cruise liner is impacted by towing such a large passive boat. The past 30 years have seen index funds grow and grow. Index fund inflows are actually the single largest transactions in the market by far. Therefore, by definition, they're not passive. Index funds have to be influencing the market in some way. And what might this influence look like exactly? Let's go back to our S&P 500 index fund from before. The S&P 500 went up about 25% in 2023. Now, where does this gain come from? Some of it comes from the fundamental growth in the S&P companies. They're doing better. Uh, active investors respond to that by saying, well, if a company is doing better, if it's more profitable, if its future outcomes look more optimistic, then those stocks are worth more right now and we should buy them. But alternatively, we should also ask, what happens when millions of individual investors put their retirement savings into S&P 500 index funds? It's simple supply and demand in that case. Joe and Jane Investor are increasing the demand for S&P 500 stocks, and therefore the price is going up. When Joe and Jane were the small canoe, their demand didn't really affect the market prices that much. But these passive investors are no longer just along for the ride. They're now actively impacting the ride. Last year's 25% price increase is not based only on fundamental growth, says Green. Instead, the average Janes and Joes are artificially increasing the price of the S&P 500 via their demand for index funds. And we should also ask, what about company number 501? That is, the first company not in the S&P 500. 
it does not receive the benefits of being part of the S&P 500 index funds. It does not receive that demand that occurs from inclusion in that index fund. And that exclusion affects company 501's price. Mike Green says that historical data clearly shows this growing impact on asset values. He calls it index inclusion. It's true for all sorts of index funds, in fact. They include some stocks and exclude others, and there's a recognizable delineation between those stocks that are included and excluded. Green says there's a distinct and permanent shift in the valuation and price levels associated with these securities when they are included or ejected from an index. Companies inside of indices are receiving more attention than they fundamentally deserve, and companies outside of indices, therefore, are getting the cold shoulder. This lack of true valuation is one of the formative factors of the index fund bubble. In the past 40 years, passive investing has done nothing but grow, but eventually that growth will end. Individual investors will start retiring more and more, withdrawals will take place more and more, and what happens when you take the money out? At that point, according to Green, the artificial inflation of index funds will cease and will quickly turn south. As more retail investors sell, prices will drop. And when investors see prices dropping, they'll get scared and sell more. The vicious cycle will continue, sell, then drop, then sell more, then drop more, into an index fund crash. It's like an old-fashioned bank run. Or, as Nassim Taleb has written, the market is like a large movie theater with a small door. If everyone is looking to get out, the only way to do so is to offer the doorman a better price than the other people. And what that means, effectively, is that prices will plummet. Pop goes the index fund bubble. Okay, guys, I'm going to read a few more. I'm playing devil's advocate here. So that was what Mike Green thought. Now, I'm also going to quote here from a gentleman named Raul Pal. Raul Pal looks the part, he sounds the part, and he produces lots of videos where he's sitting in front of monitors that are full of financial data. Personally, when I listen to him, my BS detector whirs to life a little bit. But something about maybe his accent is the British smooth accent is just so factual. But Raul Pal also argues for an index fund bubble. His argument is that the baby boomers, through no fault of their own, have been dumping too much money into passive funds like pensions and 401ks. And when they start selling en masse, which should start happening soon, ostensibly, if it hasn't started happening already, then pop will go the index fund bubble. In the USA, there are 76 million baby boomers, and their average age is now about 68 years old. The wave of retirees is about to crest, and when they start pulling money out for retirement, we will see a large theater with a small door prices will plummet. But according to Raul Pal, index funds aren't the only issue. Boomers will also face issues trying to sell their houses. That doesn't sound quite right to me because the housing market is way high in demand and low in supply. But anyway, we'll, we'll finish Pal's argument before we criticize him too much. He also thinks boomers will have issues trying to sell their material goods. Baby boomers were such prolific consumers that the economy will be overwrought with all their stuff and prices will fall everywhere. Growth will cease as markets are flooded with goods and a vicious cycle will ensue. And then, according to Pal, the doom loop of corporate debt will get ignited. Doom loops sound pretty bad to me. But in short, Pal says that corporations have recently gotten the habit of borrowing money, that's corporate debt, then buying shares of their own stock, aka stock buybacks, which drives the price of their stock higher, which is in a way an artificial price increase, which makes the company appear more valuable and usually lets the biggest stockholders like the executives get rich. Now, on that front, Pal is right. Uh, many corporations have been gluttonous when their own stocks in recent years. 
Apple, for one, is one is a, is a stock that's famous for its own buyback tactics. Eventually, those companies will have to pay back their debts, and the artificial valuations will come back to earth. Stock prices will plummet, indexes and pension funds will also plummet, and as baby boomers sell more and more, that will cause further downward pressure on stock prices. And thus, claims PAL, the third baby boomer crash will occur. Every good story has the symmetry of threes. Uh, my core issue with Raul Pal is that he's just as much of a storyteller as he is a fact teller, and therefore it's hard to tell if he's selling olive oil or snake oil. For example, this sounds impressive, where he said, the baby boomers accumulated the greatest concentration of wealth the world has ever seen, and they'll destroy it too. Wow, you know, rise and fall, the double-edged sword. The boomer giveth and the boomer taketh away. He provides some facts to back up his claims, but his facts are arguable at best. For example, he says that the 2000.com bubble occurred because boomers flooded the stock market with their investments, and then everything got dashed on the rocks as those markets collapsed. Well, the baby boomers, who were then age 45 on average, turned to real estate, says Pal, and according to him, they caused the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis. And the baby boomers are so many in number that their sum total behavior can't help but create bubbles. After 2000 and after 2008, the boomers were worried about their retirement savings, so goes Pal's argument. So now they've got to take risk and they're forced to do so in the stock market. And what's the easiest way to invest in stocks? Through passive investing. And as we've now learned twice, according to Pal, where the boomer money goes, a bubble will soon follow. It's a nice story. It has symmetry. It has foreshadowing. He narrates it well, but it doesn't mean that it has any truth to it. Euphoric day trading of dot-com companies led to the 2000 dot-com bubble. Passive investing is the exact opposite of that kind of behavior. So perhaps the money is coming from some of the same people, but that's not evidence of the existence of an index fund bubble. So in my opinion, I liked Mike Green's argument. At least they make sense to me. Raul Pal's arguments, I think he's grasping at straws a little bit. But enter Michael Burry. Michael Burry is an investor and a hedge fund manager who correctly foresaw the 2008 financial crisis. He managed to make a boatload of money for himself and for his customers through his correct prediction. And if you've seen the movie The Big Short, Michael Burry is the guy played by Christian Bale. Now, Michael Burry is also arguing for an index fund bubble. His argument is a bit less scary than Mike Green's and certainly less apocalyptic than Raoul Pal's. Now, Burry's claim is that indexing has caused an artificial bubble that's inflating stocks inside the index and thus leaving stocks outside the index ripe for the picking. It's exactly the same as the index inclusion argument that we talked about before. But where Green sees a dangerous bubble, Michael Burry sees more of an opportunity. So let's talk about another metaphor here. Imagine an identical pair of basketball playing all-stars. Everything about them is the same, including their skills, except that one of the twins plays basketball for Duke. He's always on TV. It's a very famous college basketball program, while the other one plays for Harvard. Sure, it's a good school, but nobody knows Harvard for its basketball team. The average basketball fan, just sitting on the outside looking in, would be biased towards the Duke twin. He's on the better team. He gets more media coverage. He has more postseason success. That average fan would certainly believe that the Duke twin has better long-term prospects and therefore would deserve a bigger professional contract. You know, since I built this straw man hypothetical, you and I know the truth. The two twins are exactly the same. They have the same exact skill set, and therefore signing the Harvard twin at his lower perceived value would actually be the financially efficient move. It would be the better investment. And Michael Burry is claiming that that's exactly what's happening with passive investing. Nearly identical companies are being over or undervalued 
due to their index inclusion or exclusion. Stocks on the inside of index funds are like the Duke twin being overvalued. Stocks not in the index are like the Harvard twin being undervalued. Now, in my opinion, that makes it less of an index fund bubble and more of an anti-index opportunity. Burry is simply saying, there's an inefficiency here. I've discovered it and I plan on making money off of it. By the way, come invest with me, Michael Burry, so we can make money together, right? That's what he's saying to people out there. So fine, if that argument is right, go for it, Mike. Go exploit that inefficiency. Michael Burry has a second claim, and that claim is that price discovery is becoming fragile. Price discovery is a fancy term for buyers and sellers determining a price where they're willing to make a deal. So let's think about Craigslist. Someone wants $200 for a used snowblower. Yes, here in Rochester, it helps to have a snowblower. So you take a look at the snowblower and you counter offer $150. The owner haggles back to $175 and you have a deal. That process right there was price discovery. Now, typically, stock market price discovery involves many, many buyers and many, many sellers conducting detailed analyses of a company's holdings and profits and cash flows, all of those underlying fundamental business metrics. We're going to get into those later with Brian Feraldi. That's how prices are discovered. But passive investing doesn't care about those fundamental metrics. Instead, passive investing is simply following the leader. Passive investing assumes that others in the market have already done that fundamental research and that the current price of a stock is therefore correct. It's a little bit like saying, well, the last used snowblower on Craigslist went for 200, so I'll buy the next one for 200 sight unseen. Now, are you sure you want to trust the last buyer and the last seller? Now, what if they were wrong? Don't you want to look at the snowblower yourself and, and make your own unique decision? Now, passive investing, it doesn't rely on price discovery, Burry argues. And so he's saying that prices are now dangerously skewed from whatever traditional price discovery would suggest. This cannot go on forever, and eventually the prices will snap back to reality to where they fundamentally belong. Or, I guess put another way, you could say that the index fund bubble will pop. This, according to Michael Burry, is very similar to how housing and CDO pricing malfunctioned before the 2008 crisis. It will be a painful, painful snap. Okay, deep pause. I appreciate the logic of Green and Burry and Pal. There's plenty of good money, though, still betting on the positive future of index funds. So I'm done playing devil's advocate for now. And now I want to talk about the pro-index fund side of the argument, which is ultimately the side of the argument that I land on. So let's start with Ben Carlson. Ben, financial analyst, author, blogger at A Wealth of Common Sense and the Animal Spirits podcast. Ben is awesome. I highly recommend the work that he does. One of Carlson's main arguments is that active investing by nature is biased against passive investing. Passive is stealing active's business share, and now active is biting back. Passive investing, as we've talked about, it shadows whatever active investors are doing. But rather than spending money on research and trades, Passive investing keeps its expenses pretty low. Passive has all the profits, or at least many of the profits, of active investing, but much fewer of the costs. Therefore, on the whole, passive investing is better. But active investors and active fund managers and active salespeople don't necessarily like that, and therefore the index fund bubble is potentially a propaganda technique. Now, besides, we have to consider the claims that passive investing is doing something wrong. Now, logically speaking, anything that passive investing is doing wrong first has to be done by active investors, right? You can't blame your shadow for flipping you the middle finger. The shadow only copies the source. Similarly, passive investing only copies what active investors are doing. That's a simple argument in logic. Now, 
Carlson also addressed the price discovery argument. He says that price discovery is a cop-out. There's way more trading occurring today than most times in stock market history. In the book, Index Revolution, author Charlie Ellis writes that about 95% of all the trades today are done by active managers. And therefore, there's plenty of opportunity for price discovery. It's all about trading volume. And that means that prices aren't skewed. The prices aren't stretched like a rubber band ready to snap back. There's no index fund bubble waiting to pop. Instead, the active investors are setting the prices through their majority of trading, and price discovery is healthy. So what exactly is Michael Burry worried about then? Besides, according to Carlson, when else in life do we expect individuals to actively partake in price discovery? Now, do you haggle with the grocery store cashier about the cost of oranges? All over our economy, prices are set and individual consumers simply choose to buy or not. They don't actively barter or bargain or participate in price discovery. Now, does this particular metaphor transfer over to the stock market? I'm not sure. I think a lot of people are just blindly putting their biweekly 401k contributions into index funds, regardless of price. There's not a lot of take it or leave it going on. Most of us are just buying, right? We're just taking it. So index investors might be blindly buying in, but they're still buying at a price that was intelligently discovered through the fundamental analyses of active investors. So Ben Carlson, kudos for that. Now we're going to go on to another Ben, Ben Felix. Ben Felix is a portfolio manager at a Canadian investment advisory firm and a very popular and excellent creator on YouTube. I really like one of Ben Felix's foundational arguments against the idea of the bubble. And that idea is that assets under management do not set prices. Instead, trading sets prices. So Green and Burry, they should not be asking how much money is in indexes. Instead, the question should be how much trading is done by indexes, which means that the size of the boat doesn't matter. In fact, it means that the boat metaphor doesn't even really make sense. Instead, we have to relate it back to that quote earlier from Charlie Ellis. 95% of all trades today are done by active managers. That means that price discovery is dominated by active trading, and it means that there shouldn't be any bubble driven by price discovery. BlackRock, which is a gigantic investment management firm, estimates that for every $1 of passive trades, there are $22 of active trades. Again, this points to the same conclusion. There's no issue with price discovery. There are two more really cool arguments from academic research that are against the index fund bubble. The first one comes from the very famous investing academics, Fama and French. They came to the conclusion that it doesn't take much active investing to create an efficient market. Passive investing, they say, is pushing bad active managers out of the market completely. And those who remained are only the skilled active managers. It's Darwinianism, right? It's survival of the fittest. And calling the weak active managers should only make the market more efficient. More efficient means better price discovery, which means no bubble. Pretty cool. Two other academic researchers, Pelia and Sokolinsky, have a very interesting theory too. Now, in brief, they claim that index funds are driving down the cost of short selling. And short selling, therefore, is more efficient if it costs less, and that leads to better price discovery. They start with the simple truth that index funds hold on to lots of stocks. Well, that's true. And since the supply of stocks is high, index funds can easily lend out those stocks to short sellers, right? Short sellers are people betting that a stock will go down in price. The short seller pays the index fund a small fee, which gets passed on to the passive investor, us, in the form of low costs. However, since there are so many index funds out there, the short sellers have many different options of where they want to borrow stocks from. 
with high supply come low prices. They can find their short sources very cheaply, and that makes the cost of shorting go down. Thus, Pelia and Sokolinsky conclude that passive investing is creating a more efficient market for short sellers, and a more efficient market leads, again, to better price discovery. No bubble. That's what they're saying. Now, you've heard from all the smart people, so I've got a few homegrown arguments here. The first one, well, index investing is self-corrective. If we take another look at Michael Burry's argument, he says, you know, passive investing has an inefficiency in undervaluing non-index companies, and I plan on taking advantage of that, right? Michael Burry plans on taking advantage of that. Well, if he's correct, then more active managers are going to follow his lead and make their money, and right behind them will be their shadow, aka passive investing. The market is a self-correcting system in that way, and money flows towards the best value. Passive investing will simply follow that flow of money. If passive gets too influential, then smart active managers will exploit the problem. The inefficiencies will eventually balance themselves out in the long term. And passive investing is a long-term technique. No problem there. And then the second argument I have is that it's easy to avoid the pitfalls of index inclusion. Now, index funds don't have to exclude stocks. Many investment managers, Fidelity, Vanguard, offer total market index funds. They include high and mighty S&P companies and all the other company 501s out there that might be excluded from other index funds. Therefore, if there is an index inclusion-driven bubble, the total market index funds owns both sides of that bubble. And by diversifying between different asset classes, you also exclude the risk that you are concentrated in one bubbly asset and potentially underexposed in an unbubbly asset. In general, one of my thoughts on the best interest is that it's compelling and it's interesting to understand both sides of an argument. Personally, I'm staying my course, at least for now. I have certainly not been convinced to move away from indexing or that there's an index fund bubble. Largely, indexes still float my boat, and I think the bubble argument has probably more bark than bite. I'm in it for the long run. I still think that handpicking individual stocks is interesting. It's a very interesting concept, but it's not something that I spend much time on myself. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Did you know my written blog, The Best Interest, was nominated for 2022 Personal Finance Blog of the Year, and it's been highlighted in The Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance, and on CNBC? I love writing, especially when that writing is to share financial education, and I usually write one or two articles per week. You can read them all at bestinterest.blog. Again, the web address is bestinterest.blog. Check it out. But someone who is an expert in individual stock investing is Brian Feraldi. Brian started investing in 2004. In the beginning, he had no idea what he was doing, and in his own words, he got his teeth kicked in. But his returns improved dramatically over time as his knowledge about the stock market grew. In 2015, Brian became a writer for The Motley Fool. He has since written more than 3,000 articles on stocks, investing, and personal finance. In 2022, Brian released a best-selling book entitled why does the stock market go up? You can find Brian's work at a new website that he's just launching called longtermmindset.co. We'll include that link in the show notes. Brian lives in Rhode Island with his wife and three kids. Brian Feraldi, thanks for being here. And I'll tell you what, Brian, I think listeners of The Best Interest and really readers of my blog, The Best Interest blog, they know that I love stock investing. I'm really excited because you are 
a preeminent stock investing expert. And I want to start with something controversial. The controversial question is, can investors beat the market? And if so, how? Well, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. And I will say, yes, investors can beat the market with an important caveat. And there probably should be many important caveats there. First off, when people, when ordinary people ask me, how do I invest in the market? My answer is always the same. Dollar cost average into index funds, period, full stop, end of story. The reason I tell people to do that isn't because those people aren't smart enough or capable enough to do the work necessary to beat the market. It's because those people, 99% of people, have no interest in stocks or investing or finance. And I think the first step to being able to beat the market is you have to be interested in it, period. So since 99% of people are not interested in it, I say no problem. Just dollar cost average into the S&P 500. That's all you need to know about investing full stop. However, if you're in that 1% of people that is naturally interested in stocks and investing, I do think that you can beat the market so long as you're willing to do the work necessary to learn about investing, about individual stock selection, about portfolio construction. You're willing to analyze your results and see how you can improve over time. You're willing to increase your skills through knowledge. You're willing to talk to and connect with other investors. You're willing to listen to podcasts about investing. And you're able to track your results and be brutally honest with yourself if you're actually increasing the value of your portfolio versus the index fund. If you're not willing to do any of the things that I just said, then no, you can't be to the market. But if you're willing to do that work, I absolutely think you can. So I, I don't understand though, Brian. So you're saying that if I just turn on my uncle Jim Cramer for 10 minutes a night while he shouts stocks at me, you're saying that's not sufficient? I wish that would be sufficient, but no, that is absolutely not sufficient. I know it's very come very fashionable to knock on Jim Cramer, and deservedly so, right, with, with many of the things that he does. I actually think that Mad Money has some very good segments to it. The deep dive research that he does on individual stocks is good. The interviews that he does with CEOs he does is very good. It's the lightning round and the and all the other stuff. That, that is just pure nonsense. But yeah. Jim Cramer just doing individual research and accessing CEOs, that, that is useful. And, and I assume that's something, is that something that you incorporate into your own work when it, I mean, I know for a fact that you do a lot of individual company research, deep dives, that kind of thing. Do you reach out to executives or do you try to like make contact with them somehow or, or make reach out to boards of companies, anything like that when you're doing individual company research? I have in the past, but that was mostly related to my work with The Motley Fool. If I was working on an article, I have interviewed CEOs of companies specifically in the medical device space because that was the area that interested me the most and I covered and I had a lot of knowledge in. So I have done, I reached out to boards and CEOs and CFOs and done discussions with them. But that is not a part of my research process because most of the companies that I invest in are at a size and scale when they would waste zero time talking to somebody 
like me. And I fully think that you can get a really good sense of what a CEO manager is like by reading their letters to investors, listening to them on conference calls. And I would say the most critical one is actually listening to them be interviewed on podcasts or on YouTube or at lectures. And that's when you can really get a feel for uh, the way they think about investing and their in their business uh, and, and their personality. So that, that's all the information that you need. Yeah, I, I love that answer. I mean, I love this, this entire answer you've given so far. First and foremost, because right, you, you started with the fact that what we're talking about here doesn't apply to a majority of listeners, most likely, even though we have a very, you know, uh, smart, intelligent, we have, you know, next level investors listening to this podcast. Even then, I love investing personally, Brian, I own one single company outside of all these index funds that you mentioned. I'm an index fund investor. I have one single stock. It's Berkshire Hathaway. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is mainly because I'm a big Charlie and Warren fanboy. It's not because I did the fundamental research. I'm the first one to admit it's, I wasn't sitting down looking at all their 10Ks and 10Qs or I wasn't looking at all that stuff. I was just like, well, it's like being a fan of the Yankees and owning a Yankees baseball cap. I'm a fan of Warren and Charlie, so I own their stock. Do you come across average DIY investors on a regular basis? How much time are they committing to researching individual companies? Totally depends. There are some individual investors out there that are absolutely fabulous. And I would say that their individ- that personal research process can be compared to mutual funds or hedge funds, or they could go up against anybody from a research perspective and do just as well. And then there are plenty of other people that just see a stock ticker. They see it mentioned on a Reddit board. They see a tweet about it. They see one metric, like how much the stock has gone up recently or the revenue growth rate or that's profitable or that it has a CEO that they like and, and they buy. So the research that individuals have varies hugely from individual to individual. And I can speak for myself. When I first started investing, I had no idea how to do research, let alone what research to do, what benchmarks to compare them to. I knew absolutely nothing about investing. My initial round of research was what is the dollar price of one share of stock? End of research, right? And if it was under $5 per share, I was interested in it. That, that, that was it. Now, when I started investing in 2004, coming across information about investing was much more difficult than it was today. We did have Yahoo Finance, but we did not have conference calls that we could listen to or transcripts we can read. Some companies did not have websites or they did not have investor relations departments. So it was much harder back then than it is today. But even if I was starting investing today with my knowledge right out of college, I would have no clue what I was even looking for when trying to research a a business. So it makes total sense why so many people, when they first start out, use the bare amount of research and the bare amount of information to make big investing decisions. Right. And so maybe maybe we can dive into some of that because I wanted to ask you, I know some relatively famous individual stock investors And from what I understand, they tend not to pay attention to macroeconomic themes, things like whether it's a bull or bear market or inflation or interest rates or unemployment. I mean, these are things that tend to influence the DIY people that we're talking to. They'll say something like, boy, why are you investing in in companies in 2022? Don't you see it's a bear market? And, And my understanding is that most good stock investors tend to ignore that stuff. But but what do you look for in these companies or or what are some of the metrics that you have dove into? Uh, since those early days when you weren't sure what you were doing? 
Well, when I first started out, as I said, my process was nothing other than the share price. And over the last 20 years, I have been slowly refining the criteria that I use to identify investments. Uh, to answer your first question when it comes to macroeconomic forecasts and stuff, I spend very little time thinking about macroeconomics because it's so big, so complex. There is so much data that that, that is out there that a smart person can take that data and we've any story that they wanted to believably. Two people could be looking at the exact same data sets. One person could make you convinced that the United States was set up for the next biggest bull run in the history uh, of the world. And another one could take the exact same data set and say, we're at the top. This is a bear market. We're entering a depression. And both arguments could be extremely convincing. So when it comes to macroeconomic forecasting, I try and keep loosely aware of where I think we are with regards to unemployment and what valuations are, but I think very little about that when it comes to building out my individual portfolio of stocks. The reason that I do so is it doesn't matter to me as much what interest rates are or unemployment rates are. What matters to me is how fast are the companies that I own growing? What is their market opportunity? What is their competitive advantage? What are they doing with the capital that they get? Are they profitable? Do they have a strong balance sheet? Those things matter much more over the long term than what is the prevailing interest rate of the day. But to answer your question about what goes into my research process, I have several categories that I look for when I'm researching a, a company. Broadly speaking, those categories are one, the current financial picture of a company, the composition of its income statement. Is it profitable? Is it free cash flow positive? Does it have a strong balance sheet? Two, what is the competitive advantage of that business? This is Warren Buffett's moat analogy. So does it have a moat? What is the direction of the moat? What is the current strength of that moat? Three would be the potential of the business. Is the market it's in growing or shrinking? Is it growing organically? Is it a top dog? Does it have something called operating leverage built into the business? Four would be the relationship that the company has with its customers. So are its customers free to acquire and largely come to the company through word of mouth? Or does the company have to spend big on sales and marketing to attract those customers? And once a customer comes on board, is their spending cyclical and dependent on the economy? Or is that spending recession-proof, as it would be for like a utility? Five would be the quality of the revenue of the company. Is it recurring or is it one time? Does the company have pricing power? Six would be the quality of the management team. Is it run by a founder? Is that person a long-tenured CEO? Do they own a lot of stock? Do they get good ratings on Glassdoor? And the seventh category would be the stock itself. Has that stock beaten the market over time, which is a good thing? Or has it lost to the market over time, which would be a bad thing? Does the company consistently outperform its expectations? Does it buy back stock? Does it pay a dividend? So those are all the positive things that I look for in a company. And then I have a big list of the negative things that I look for in a company, such as customer concentration. I hate it when a company gets a lot of revenue from a single customer. Is that company dependent on interest rates or a strong economy or commodity prices to do well? Does that company have a very high level of dilution through stock-based compensation? Are the financial statements complicated or they easy to sift through, et cetera? So that is my process that I have. I have a, a list of good things that I look for, a list of bad things that I look for. And now I can take any company that I come across, run them through this checklist that I've developed for myself and figure out, is this investment match what I'm looking for in a business? So, so slightly more complicated than 10 minutes on CNBC. Slightly That's more it. complicated <laughs> than, than, than what is the stock price today? Yes. It's very enlightening and it's very eye-opening because this should be uh, an in-depth process. 
these are giant businesses. They're complicated. There are uh, a lot of forces at play, whether it's competitive forces or, or, you know, it's more than that simple Peter Lynch-ism that some listeners might have heard of, which is, you know, buy what you know. You're a fan of Dunkin' Donuts? Well, you might want to buy it then. I know Peter Lynch had some nuance to his statement when he originally said that, but some investors, they think that way. They think, well, Warren Buffett, he likes Coke, so he owns Coke. Well, there's a little bit more to it than that. I'm going to tee one up here for you, Brian, and I, I think you can hit a home run on it. Is there a resource that you've put together where listeners can go access some form of the checklist that you just went through? brianferaldi.com backslash checklist. So what that is, is it's a download that I have that just gives you access to a Google sheet that literally has my checklist on it line for line. So if you're interested in downloading it, I would encourage you to do so and take the parameters that are in there and make them your own. Delete things that you think shouldn't be there, add things that you think uh, should, but it's, it's a good starting point. Awesome. We are going to throw that in the show notes for sure. Speaking of Peter Lynch, let's go back. When I think of the Mount Rushmore of investors, whether it's you know Buffett or Munger or Lynch or Bogle, there are dozens more that I either don't know of or I'm forgetting. I mean, everybody loves a good investing quote. It's like golf quotes. It's like the two most quotable pastimes in history, I feel like. Are there any particular investing quotes that really stick out to you as paramount above all others or just that maybe fit into your investing style perfectly? Yeah, I mean, I am a collector of quotes. I have a couple hundred quotes that, I, that I've collected over the years and I regularly share out on Twitter. So some that come to mind uh, immediately would be Charlie Munger's quote, the first rule of compounding, never interrupt it unnecessarily. What a brilliant way to, to express it. So many people, myself included, have a natural inclination to look at their portfolio and have a need to tinker with it, to nibble here, to buy more there, to really try and outthink it. But his quote, the first rule of compounding, never interrupt it unnecessarily, speaks volumes because it shows that to let the asset do the work, let the compounding do the work, don't fiddle with it. Because I've heard it say that investing is kind of like a soap. The more you fiddle with it, the smaller it gets. Love it. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Serious question. Why do podcasters constantly ask for ratings and reviews? Yes, they do help highlight our shows to new listeners. They help strangers find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's totally true and a good reason to ask for ratings and reviews. But I have something more important, at least more important to me. I want to know if you like this stuff. I want to know if you like my podcast episodes, my monologues, my guests, the information I share with you and the stories I tell. I want to improve and make your listening more enjoyable in the process. So yeah, I would love to read your reviews. And sure, if you throw a rating in there too, that's great. If you like what I'm doing, please share it with me. It's such a great feeling to read your feedback. I'd love to read your review or see a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you. And now maybe a spicy question here. Are there any quotes or philosophies from these famous investors where you, you hear it and you're like, no, I, I completely disagree with that. So one of them that I don't necessarily, I disagree with the, the exact nature of the quote, although I agree with the spirit of the quote. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it comes from Buffett. Buffett was once talking to a group of college students. And one of the things that he said to those students is, I could make all of you much better investors right now if I gave you a punch card and that punch card had 20 spots on it. The idea being that throughout your life, Every time you made an investment, you had to punch one of these holes in this punch cards. And if I own, if I told you you could only make 20 investments throughout your entire life, you would think very deeply and really think things through before you wasted one of those punches on buying an individual stock. 
Now, if you actually look at what Warren Buffett has done himself, he has owned hundreds of stocks uh, throughout his 50 or 60 years uh, investing in the market. So he himself has violated that rule because he has bought far more companies uh, than, than 20. I myself have bought, at this point, more than 100 individual uh, companies. I don't still hold them all, but I have bought hundreds of stocks. Peter Lynch owned hundreds of stocks. Shelby Davis owned hundreds of stocks. So I don't think, I don't agree with the premise that you should only make 20 investments in your life or, or whatever. I do agree with his sentiment, though, that if you are going to make investments, you should do deep research and deep thinking about them before you throw money be behind any particular asset. And his general philosophy was think carefully. Capital is precious. Only allocate it when you really think the odds are in your favor. So that spirit of the quote I can get behind, but I just have never liked the 20 punch card limit for a life of investing. Yeah. And I, I've had people confuse that quote before too, where they say like, well, 20 punch cards. I mean, I'm dollar cost averaging every two weeks into my 401k that like right away, I'm, I'm, there's 20 contributions takes me like nine months. And like, you know, again, it's just a misunderstanding of the quote, but I think of that quote a little along the lines of the bar of soap analogy, actually, where it's, you know, investing or just portfolio management, kind of the long-term investing mindset. Generally, the more you mess around, the worse off you'll be you have to put a lot of care into touching that portfolio. So, you know, the bar of soap, if you touch it too much, it disappears. But I, I hear what you're saying is the sentiment behind it is you really have to care. You really have to care and, and put thought into these big money decisions. I've been an active participant in The Motley Fool for more than 10 years now. And The Motley Fool has been making individual stock recommendations for going on a more than 20 years now. And a few years back, they did an analysis of their own recommendations. Uh, and they make buy recommendations and occasional sell recommendations. And their accuracy rate on the sell recommendations in particular is fairly high. When they say sell a stock, they usually get that right, say, eight out of 10 times or so. So they have a pretty good track record there. But one of their analysis that always stuck with me is they reran the numbers, assuming that they never sold anything, that they never issued a single sell recommendation. And what they found is if they did that, their returns would be higher. So every single sell decision, even though many of them were correct, even with the benefit of hindsight, they would have made members more money had they never issued a sell recommendation at all. And that's a great example of the compounding, never interrupt the compounding process unnecessarily. Even though they sold eight out of 10 stocks and those stocks went down, they did end up selling Netflix early, Arm Holdings early, and these stocks that went on to deliver enormous returns from where, where they said uh, sell. And missing out on those winners that went on to go up huge cost them far more than correctly selling the losers that continue to go down. I love that example. And that's a great example of the kind of nuanced math when it comes to investing that maybe some people on the outside don't understand, which is you can be right eight out of 10 times in the, in just like that in, in example, Brian, and maybe those eight out of 10 times you saved yourself, you know, a 2% here, a 3% there, as far as what other result you would have had. But if in one of your mistakes, you make up a 50% mistake, that mistake can wash away all of the right decisions you made eight out of 10 times, or, or put another way, you know, when it comes back to that concept of beating the market, you can beat the market 1% a year for nine years in a row, and you're feeling like you're on top of the world. In that 10th year though, if you underperform by 30%, well, you just washed away all of your positive 
And now on net, you're underperforming the market. So just suffice to say that measuring wins and losses alone, just as like tallies, isn't quite enough. It's important to understand the quantity of your win. You know, how much did you win by? How much do you lose by? And it just goes to show that, right, investing is, is hard. It's nuanced. It involves a good amount of math. For sure. I mean, speaking for myself, I've sold many stocks over the last 10 years. Many of them went on to go out of business or, or go down from where I sold. But none of that matters because I also sold Microsoft for $24 a share. <laughs> I, so Microsoft, I, I sold it for $24 a share. It's currently trading at 407 So I missed out on a almost 20-bagger on Microsoft, like big, obvious Microsoft, simply because I was in a rush to take a profit. So all of those sell decisions that I got right, eliminated, neutralized by a single bad decision to sell Microsoft too early. And also that, that Motley Fool recommendation, or, or maybe not recommendation, but the the result they found of what they would have been better off if they never recommended a sell uh, a recommendation, that's kind of in a way almost like holding an index fund, where if you buy and hold it for life, if that's your idea, you know you're going to be holding a bunch of winners and a bunch of losers. You're never going to sell those losers, I suppose, until maybe they cycle out of the index that you're holding. But index fund investors, which many of us are, we go into it understanding that we're going to own a bunch of losers. We just know that over time, the, the winners are going to outweigh those losers. Yep. It's Jack Bogle's old, don't spend time looking for the needle in the haystack, just buy the haystack, right? And I, I would actually disagree with what you just said. I, I don't think that many people that buy index fund understand that the majority <laughs> of the stocks that they hold do go down and do underperform the market because the only thing they're paying attention to is the dollar price of the index fund itself. I mean, that is one big benefit of investing in the index fund. All of the chaos that happens with stocks going down, stocks going up, stocks quadrupling, stocks getting... Uh, cut in half. All of that is hidden from view. And the only thing they see is the aggregate price. So I would say from a psychological perspective, that's a huge benefit of index funds. Thank you for disagreeing with me because I, I, I do think you're right. I think you hit the nail right on the head, maybe the needle right on the head. You threaded that needle perfectly. That's what I should say, Brian. But another interesting thing, I don't have the data right in front of me, but I remember looking at it before. And, and this data is very dependent on the time period that you're looking at itself. Even some investors who understand the general premise of an index fund, they assume that 50% of the stocks in there are, are winners or beat the market, and that 50% are losers or underperform the market. And even that generally is not right. Again, it depends on the time frame that you look at, but the data that I've seen before, it was like, call it 1980 to 2016, something like that. It was something like 65 or 70% of individual stocks underperformed the market in that period, and only the remaining 30 or so percent led to all of the outperformance over time. So it really it's not a coin flip. It, you really are looking for a minority of stocks that bring relative outperformance. Which is a really important stat to keep in mind if you're going to be buying individual stocks. Uh, yeah, I, I had the exact same mindset. I used to think half of stocks beat the market, half of stocks lost to the market. So I used to think it was a coin flip whether or not you are right. I've since changed my mind after reading some, some studies, and I actually think it's much more helpful to think of, am I going to do well with this investment or not as a roll of the dice? Four out of six times, so one, two, three, or four, if you roll one, two, three, or four with that dice, you're going to either lose money or lose to the market, both of which are subpar results. If you roll a five with that dice, you're going to outperform the market, but not by much. You will make more money than the market, but just a little bit. 
But on occasion, you roll that six and the returns that you get from that that six will be so huge in comparison to what the market earns in, in general that what the returns from that sixth roll power all of the returns of the portfolio and then some. So this is a really important thing to keep in mind if you're buying individual stocks. If you buy 10 stocks, you just know you should know ahead of time you're going to be wrong and lose money on six of them. You're going to do okay on three of them. And your goal as an investor is to have one of them, just one of them, be a mega winner. But that's okay. As long as that company wins so much, it'll pay for all of the losses of all other nine stocks combined. I love that. We're going we're gonna to use that. We're going to call it the, the Brian Feroldi dice metaphor. That's awesome. We all know you focus a lot on investing. It's, all, it's so much fun to listen to you talk about it. But I've also heard you say that you're just a huge proponent in general of financial wellness. And that is certainly something here on The Best Interest. This isn't just an investing podcast. We also talk about personal finance, financial wellness in general. And I think this is something I've, I've heard you say where just like in health, where in health, you know, lifting weights is not the same as health wellness. There's more to finances than investing in stocks. So what are your other favorite areas of focus? And I guess, why do you enjoy spending time thinking about them? Why do you find them meaningful? I am a huge fan of investing in the stock market. It's one of my favorite things to think about. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. I've devoted a huge amount of my personal free time to thinking about just that. But I'm simultaneously a firm believer that what you do with your investing finances are in order of magnitude less important than what you do with your personal uh, finances. So I think buying individual stocks is like step 13 in terms of doing well with money, but you can't focus on step 13 until, step, until steps one through 12 are already taken, up, are taken care of. So steps one through 12 are really boring, but they relate to personal finances and they include things like, do you know how much money you spend e each year and on what categories? Do you have a cash emergency fund set aside? Do you have your debt paid off. You have your credit card debt eliminated, your car debt eliminated. The only debt I think you're allowed to have would be any debt that you have on, on, on a mortgage. Are you investing in uh, tax-advantaged ways? So have you invested in a 401k, a Roth IRA? Have you got your insurance set up properly? Have you done your estate planning? All of those kind of things are incredibly boring to think about because talking about stocks is far more exciting. But I think that that is the requirement. Uh, those are the table stakes that you need to have taken care of before you should spend any mental energy thinking about what investment should I make or what stock should I pick. So my personal philosophy is that you take care of your personal finances first and that affords you the option and the opportunity to make sure that your personal life and your investing life are two completely separate things. And that way, one won't impact the other. For example, if you lose your job, the, the most important, most likely time you're, uh, you are to lose your income is the exact same time when the economy is crumbling and the stock market is, is down. And that is the worst possible time to pull money out of the market. But if you have no other option because your personal finances have been exhausted, you're going to be selling stocks or selling assets at the absolute worst time because you have a desperate need for the money. So by making your finances, your personal finances rock solid, you protect your assets and your investments from the volatility of everyday life. And that works in reverse as well. So I'm a big fan of keeping your personal finances 
rock solid and ridiculously conservative, which allows you, if you want, to make your investing finances aggressive and you can go after the highest returns possible so long as those two things never interact with each other. You could almost, you know, the, the analogy is a, a safety net or a, or a parachute. You could almost use the analogy of a moat that you need to build a, a moat around your own personal finances to keep that volatility at bay. That volatility is, is in my investment portfolio. It's over there. But my personal financial house is rock solid. We, we talked about it recently on the podcast, Brian, that, that right, just understanding monthly cash flow is, at least in my opinion, it's the most fundamental aspect of personal finance. And yet, even that is often overlooked. The number of people who come to me with just general investing questions, which is great to be asking, it's great to be thinking that. But then part of my response is, hey, before we get to that, on average, what's your monthly income? What's your monthly spending? And they don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a problem. It's putting the cart before the horse because how can you even think about putting 500 a month into your Roth IRA if you don't even know if you have 500 a month to really afford to put over there? Absolutely. It, it's the basics. It's just like the same with investments, uh, with, with investing in a stock. A really important question to ask is, is this company profitable or is this company unprofitable? And if the company said, I don't know, we've never looked to figure, figure that out, well, I sure as heck would not invest in that company. So the same is true of your personal finances. Very cool. Well, Brian, we are talking before, before recording here. And my understanding is that probably by the time this is out, this podcast is out, you will have a new shiny website. What, what's going to be on that website and, and where can listeners find both the website or just find you in general to connect? Yeah, so the easiest place to connect with me is on Twitter. I'm at Brian Feraldi. I'm also on uh, all the platforms, YouTube, LinkedIn, et cetera, depending on where you like to hang out online. But yeah, four years ago, I started a educational finance education company called Long-Term Mindset with me and my uh, two business partners. And we have yet to launch a actual company website. I know it's been, it's almost embarrassing to admit that out loud, but we've been working on it for the last couple of months and it should be launching in early February. So that's longtermmindset.co. Awesome. All of that will be in the show notes. Brian Feraldi, thanks for stopping by the Best Interest Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jesse. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.